Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Categorically Romance podcast. I'm Aaron. And I'm Bree. And today we are joined by the author, Brenda Jackson. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Please tell us, how has 2022 been treating you? Oh, so far, so good. Um, It started out, oh gosh, my birthday is in um, February, the 2nd of February. And it hit me this year that this would be my last year in the 60s. So I determined that, hey, if I'm going to leave the 60s to head over to the 70s, I was going to enjoy my last year in the 60s. So mm-hmm. the year I this year I turned 69. So I've been doing a lot of fun things. So in addition to writing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I Excellent. love that. I feel Excellent. like you're going to totally just rock 70. Like bring I, it on. So I was telling my goddaughter yesterday, she turns 26 next month. And she said, how did you do it? I'm like, I don't know that I can handle turning 26. I said, girl, get over it. I mean, <laughs> here I am in my last year of 60. And you're just not even <laughs> four years from 30. And you're having a problem. I'm like, well, <laughs> you just roll with the flow and you just enjoy life. And of course, as she get older, she will find out that she just needs to chill, take a chill pill and enjoy life. Okay. Yes. It's something about that. I remember when I turned 25, my sister was like, oh, you're over the hill now. It's like, what is our thing with being close to 30? I think that's it. Like the thirties, you're no longer, you know, a teen and in those twenties or something. But the thirties, you hit the thirties and you're just like, this is such a breath of fresh air. And I hear like every decade after that, you give less and less, you know, you, you care less and less. And you're just right. well, you know, you know, having such a good time. The, um, 60s were the new 40s. So far as I'm concerned, yes. I'm in the 50s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. in the 50s and I can do that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if you came with a warning label, what would it say? Do not interrupt when writing. <laughs> Oh, we don't need that. you to be interrupted while yes. writing, okay? <laughs> family knows that. And they, when I put the no interruption sign on my door, they know they will slide a note up under it or whatever. <laughs> uh, can you redo this when you finish? Do you, what do you want to eat? But they know I'm very serious when I'm in my concentration mode when writing. Oh, yeah. Well, you mentioned food. So it, you decide to get takeout. For dinner, where do you order from and what's your order? Oh, usually Red Lobster because I love seafood. Mm. I can Mm -hmm. eat seafood every day and any place that sells seafood, but usually my to-go place is Red Lobster. Yeah. Those cheddar biscuits are just something else. Yes, I say they're little biscuits. (laughs) And I call myself uh, buying some, you know, the recipe to make my own because it was on Google wasn't the same. So now I just buy them. You know, I'm like, yeah. why <laughs> yeah. well, what was the last song that got stuck in your head? Oh, gosh, I heard this song for the first time in a while. My Girl by The Temptation. Oh. oh, gosh, I don't care how many times I hear it. It's just something about David Ruffin singing My Girl. And it just Puts me in the mood to just think about a guy who's just so proud of his girl that he just wanted to sing out lyrics. So I use a lot of Motown tunes, um, you know, to get in the mood to write. But whenever I hear my girl, I could just start singing it. Once I hear it, then I'm singing it the rest of the day. Yeah. <laughs> what is one film or television show that you'll never stop watching? Dirty Dancing. Really? Patrick Swayze. Oh, gosh. Because it had not only a lot of good dance moves, but it had a lot of wonderful songs in it. I mean, yeah, like, it did. A Solomon Burke. And I mean, just just the soundtrack to it, it just was amazing. And then, yeah. of course, at the end, I've had the time of my life. You know, that was just, oh, gosh, that was just my song, you know? Yeah. yeah. I've like really grown an appreciation for that movie, like as 
it becomes older. Like I didn't know in like when they were filming it, he was actually hurt. So that last scene, like he was like, okay. And he had to keep doing it over and over. He's like, I can probably do it one more time. And it finally was like perfect. But yeah, yeah, it's such a good movie. It is. It is wonderful movie. Wonderful. Tell us, Miss Brenda, how you became a romance reader. Oh gosh. You know, I used to write love stories when I was in the eighth grade. I used to watch, and y'all are young, so y'all probably have never heard of Gidget and Moondog, the Fandra D. Bobby Darren stories. They were beach stories, and I live in Florida, where all the beaches, and most of them was filmed on in Daytona Beach. And it was just wonderful, cute, innocent love stories. And the girl name was Gidget, and the boy nickname was Moondoggy. And, you know, they would break up and then they would get back together. And I was just, I was just in love with them. So I decided to write my own Gidget and Moondoggy. I would write it on notebook paper and I would give it two different endings. And I would staple the pages together, front and back, 10 pages. And my uh, classmates would meet my bus every Monday for those stories. And they would spread all over school. And then they would say, what ending did you get? What ending did you get? And that went on until I got in trouble because the students, my friends were reading my stories instead of doing their work in class. So all these teachers were collecting my little stories. And I was told I could not write my stories anymore, but I wrote them anyway. So I got into trouble and I knew I was in trouble when they called my mom to come out to the school and tell me in front of my mom, the principal told me in front of my mom that I was disrupting the classes and I could not write my stories. And that was devastating to me. And my mom said, well, just grow up and be a writer. Well, of course I did. And I went to college to get into corporate America. But when I would go back to my school, those same teachers who used to tell on me for writing my stories, they would be the first one to slide up to me. Well, did you become a writer? Did you ever write any of those stories? Because we really enjoyed reading them. They would take them from the students and read my stories. And so my husband said, I can't believe they did that. I said, well, just to shut them up, when I come to my next class reunion, I will have a, not only will I have a story written, I will be published. Well, that was easier said than done because at that time there were no publishers looking for black romances. But still, I went and I had my little stories printed. And so I, you know, copyrighted it. And then I passed them out just like I did in high school. And who was the first people up there to pick up my stories? My teachers. So that made, and they all had compliments. They say, this is what your calling is. But I didn't believe them. I worked at State Farm for 37 years and it was like halfway. I think I was in my 40s that I was challenged by one of my teachers to write and not only write, but pretty much to get it published. And that's when I started going to RWA. And that's when I started really trying to get my first book published. Yeah. I just love that you were writing fan fiction before fan fiction was really. (laughs) And now some of those students are some of my biggest readers now. And they're proud to tell you I was reading her in eighth grade. (laughs) (laughs) Famous and a bestseller in eighth grade. I don't think anyone's surprised. In my mind, in my mind, you know. Well, congratulations on the sixth book in the Catalina Cove series, Uh, The House on Blueberry Lane. Can you take us back all the way to the beginning and share with us how the idea for Catalina Cove came to you? Oh, gosh. I was trying to decide. I had just finished writing the Protector series, which is all action and guns and, you know, three bodyguards. And so someone mentioned to me, say, you know what? Uh, everybody's reading now of these small town places. So I was asked, what was my favorite small town? Not small town, but if I could write a book about a small town, what state would I put it in? And I say Louisiana. 
And they asked mm-hmm. why. I say, because I love New Orleans. That used to be my husband and my go-to place. I mean, whenever we just needed to get away. So we were fascinated by New Orleans. The first time that we went there, we like, really? This place is old, cruddy looking. What's, what's going on here? Why is it so popular? Why the French quarters? But then I appreciated the history. I appreciated the steamboats the, that went down the Mississippi. I just appreciated all of that. And we just started going back every year. It's like our life was not complete. If that year ended, if we didn't go to New Orleans, if we didn't go just to eat the seafood, you know, uh, we live on the Atlantic Ocean, but it was something about the seafood that came from the Gulf that was just different. So um, I knew that I wanted to write a town. I didn't want to write about New Orleans, but I wanted to write a fictitious town that was close to New Orleans. And that's how I came up with Catalina Cove. Wow. Well, will you share with our listeners what the House on Blueberry Lane is about? Oh, gosh. It's about second chance at love. When I first introduced the character of Jay and Velvet, I had already introduced them in some of my other books, and they were the Steele family. And I didn't introduce them much, but one thing you knew was that Jay really loved Velvet. He just didn't know it. And so I would put that in the Steele book, you know, because they would ask, say, okay, do you like her, like dad love mom or the way Jay loves Velvet? Because yeah. Jay loved Velvet was like in denial, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, that's how the Steele brothers would uh, define their uh, relationship, their love. No, we we don't love them like Jay love Velvet. We love them like mom love, dad love mom, because they knew Jay was in denial. So I decided to bring them to Catalina Cove because I know that I wanted Jay, I mean, I wanted Velvet to give Jay something to think about. Because sometimes you know how the thing, the grass looked greener on the other side and he was not aware or maybe he was aware in my mind, but he just could not admit to loving someone because of what his mom did to his dad. He was afraid. and he didn't own up to his fear until he lost her. And for him to just find out she was gone, she did not tell him where she was gone, did not leave a note, but he knew why. Because when he sat down and thought about it, she loved me. She told him she loved me, but he never told her back. Because his thing was, I told in the beginning how things would be. For her to get this exclusive relationship out of me, that's as far as I'm going. You know, but she's still going to live in her house. I'm still going to live in mine. So he still was working within the parameters of, I'm not going to fall in love with this woman. And that's really what it's about. A man coming, reckoning to the fact that he loves a woman. And now that he knows that, he will move heaven and hell to get her back. Yes. But the question is, can he, how will he? Because he can't just go to her and say, oh, I woke up this morning. As soon as you left, I realized I love you. That's not going to work, okay? So he had to put a lot of thought into it and planning into it. And it didn't go at first the way he thought it would. But in the end, it worked out for him. Yeah. Well, you had mentioned a part of this, but one part of the book that keeps you reading is Jay's emotional wound due to his mother, which really shaped the man that he became when Velvet first met him. Can you talk about writing this part of his character? Yes. Um, he was the oldest and I'm the oldest. And with being the oldest, you have a lot of responsibility. Are either one of you the oldest or? I'm the oldest. I'm so the baby. Oh, wow. The baby. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, the oldest, you know, and I used to tell people, I was my parents' living babysitter. I was the automatic dishwasher. I was everything. I was the oldest. And Jay was the oldest. And he felt not only a betrayal with what his mom did to his dad, but when I went back and explained that he was the one that the mom blamed, for finding out 
the day at finding out that she was even in an affair, that was a lot on a child of 12 to have to deal with. So he saw what it did to his dad. He saw that women could not be trusted and how just openly his dad working two jobs Mm -hmm. to keep this woman home with her kids. And she was not home with her kids. So all of that shaped him into believing that he would never, ever find a woman that he would love or trust enough to give his heart to. I just think I haven't read anything like Jay. I mean, we've read romances with, you know, the player in there, but this is the first romance I've read where it's like, I get why you are the way you are, Jay. And your heart goes out to him, but it also goes out to Velvet. (laughs) You're just like, I have to see. Yes, (laughs) yes. And I wanted that. I mean, you had some people were on team Velvet. Some were on team Jay. They wanted him to get her back. And some people say, oh, no, he needs to suffer a little bit more, you know. <laughs> and I'm like, well, my goodness, how much do you want? I mean, really? I mean, yeah. Because the way out. that you write it is he does tell her he's like honest from her from the beginning. Like, this is me. This is all you're going to get. And she sticks around for that. So you're yes. reading it and you're like, she knows. She knew no. what Jay was going to give her. He felt that. In three years, she was going, I mean, and I think when I was writing the book, I was asking myself questions. I'm like, hmm, would um, Velvet stay with him a fourth year had she not overheard what he told Mercury Steele? Like, oh, I don't love her. I love sex. I mean, for you to be in a relationship with a guy and he talking, you know, saying that about you and Mercury knew it wasn't true. No, I see how you look at her. I mean, you can't wait to come from your business trip. But everybody saw it. His dad, his brothers, the steals. But the most important person didn't see it. And that was Jay. And he didn't get it until she was gone. You know, and I'm like, oh, gosh, Jay, I need to just pop you upside there. But there are a lot of men like Jay, you know, who just, you know, can't see the forest for the trees. They just don't know, you know. And then there's a lot of women like Jay who don't know how to appreciate what they have. So Mm -hmm. I wanted that story to not just be about the men, but also about the women who just think you the person that you're with is going to be there with you forever because it's not going to always be that way. Somebody's going to get tired of waiting you know, and, you know, it's so funny when um this week, because of what's going on in England, um, and I was reading something where for years they called Katie, Waity Katie, because she didn't give up on William. She was going to hang in and hang around. And for seven or eight years, she did that. Well, Velvet, like, hey, three is all I'm Three going is to. enough. <laughs> three is enough. Okay. So, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. So, yeah. She was gone. And she honestly didn't think that he would come after. I mean, after two years, you know, maybe she was hoping at first. But after two years, it was just in her mind. He really just didn't love me. He's incapable of loving. So and she accepted that. So is this was their their storyline. Did you know that, you know, books ago or did it come to you when you sat down to really focus on writing this one specifically because they like you said they both you've introduced them to before so how did the specifics was that already ironed out or was there anything that came to you like as you were writing it oh gosh I never knew until I wrote first book in Kalina Cole I did not have Velvet or Jay on my mind and I tell people Kalina Cole is the character it's the main character of the book You know, this book is different. Uh, this series is different from my other series in that don't have a family. You know, I got the Westmorelands, you know, everybody. I got the Madarises, you know, everybody. But this is the town. And I wanted a town where you got to know the people who lived in the town and why they lived in the town and what was so special about Kalina Cole that made them leave and come mm-hmm. back or made them stay. Um, and so that what I wanted to do. So it was only when I introduced Spencer and I say, wait a minute, 
didn't I, did I write about a Spencer before? Because I introduced the restaurant in book one when um, uh, the sheriff's daughter wanted to go to Spencer's. So that stayed in the back of my mind. Spencer's. I have somebody I know had this name. And I say, well, no, it's not Spencer. Like I wrote about a Spencer for the Westmoreland. This is Spencer's. This is the last name. So it only dawned on me after the third Catalina Cove book that when I had to write, I think, a steel book, that I say, that's what it is, Spencer. That's Velvet <laughs> last name. And I say, you know, my readers have been asking me uh, to write Jay and Velvet's story. So now is a good time to connect them, to connect her to Catalina Cove. And that's where the idea of taking Jay and Velvet to Catalina Cove came about. Instead of writing an additional steel book to put them in, I'm like, no, I'm going to take them to Catalina Cove. They were not the first couple that I took from one of my series because I did that with Follow Your Heart. I took a Madaris and put them in Catalina Cove. So I'm like, okay, I could do this. And it fit perfectly. And I just gave her, made her the friend of Sierra. And then everybody wanted Velvet Story. And when they found out I was bringing Jay from the steels, it was like a lot of mixed reaction. Oh, yeah. Well, now he's finally realized he loved her, huh? How are you going to redeem Jay? Hey, I mean, you know, because he's friends with the steel and everybody knows those steels are whatever, you know, they don't appreciate women, you know, but they had an excuse. If you ever read any of my Steele's book and found and wondered why they acted so womanizing, they said it's because of our dad. You know, we got his genes before he bought, before he met mom, he was just like us. He was a womanizer, whatever. So that's why we, Jay didn't have that. He had his mom and that mm -hmm. was his issue, his mom. So yeah. he had to get over that. Yeah. Well, what advice would you have for any aspiring writers listening that are writing and trying to their hand at writing these big families? Because, I mean, we love your big families. So like, what advice do you have for them? Oh, gosh, you know your family. No, when I say know your family, I'm a pantser. I do not write anything down. Okay. I, I do not write. You know how people write. I mean, by the time I write outlines, I could have finished the book by the time I do that. But what I have, because I'm from a big family, I'm the oldest of my family, but I'm from a huge family on both my mom and my dad's side. So I know the dynamics of a family. And so when I sit down and I write a family, I think of my own family. I think of all the brothers, all the cousins, and how it happens when we get together and how much fun we have. And you know that song by Sister, uh, Sister Sledge, We Are Family? Yeah. That's what I concentrate on, what makes the family dynamic. Because my mom always said, blood is thicker than water. You know, no one's going to treat you like your family. Taking all of that, I believe if you want to come up with writing a family, you need to know the family dynamics. You need to decide who you want to write about. If you notice, most of my books are mostly about men. The Westmoreland, I think I had like 30 men and three women in the family. And the Steels, you know, I very seldom had women because I have a lot of male cousins and I grew up around them and I know how they think. You know, and I was the one that was hiding under the bed, listening to them plot their dates and what they're going to do. And, you know, just listening and all of this kind of stuff. And so I knew how to write a family. And so understanding family dynamics. And once you understand family dynamics, you give it a believable plot. And you just go for it. Just put all those things that you know that you incorporate into writing that you should and just go for it. Yeah. But always keep in mind, readers want to be brought up to date on what's happening in the family. Um, the last person you wrote about, so you got to bring them together for weddings or 
family reunions once in a while. Because when I wrote my last um, Westmoreland, for people to find out that Delaney is now a queen, that she's had two more kids, that was just like wonderful because they fell in love with the family. And you have to keep them updated on the family. Well, despite Jay's noncommittal history, there is something very romantic about going after the one who got away, which we see with Jay's arrival in Catalina Cove. What did you most enjoy about writing the romance between Jay and Velvet? Oh, gosh, that it wasn't what he thought it would be. You know, at first, because when he in the first of the prologue, when he first arrived to town and saw he honestly was going to tell her why he was there. He had bought a bank for her, that he deliberately moved in the house to be next, next door. Yeah. Her. I could <laughs> on top of her. But he knew from what she said, oh, man, you wouldn't have never, you know, done that, you know. So mm-hmm. he knew then that if he told her, she wouldn't believe it. So he had to basically prove his love for her. And it wasn't easy. Because she, the more he did, the more she didn't believe it. And even she turned the uh, turned the storyline on him when he was the one that just wanted to make love, have a non-committal relationship. Then she said, well, you enjoyed it. I think that's what I'm going to do now. And he didn't know what to think, you know, because <laughs> you and I, you really velvet. And she said, yeah, if it was good for you, it can be good for me. And that threw him because he had to revamp, rethink, figure out how, you know, and it took his dad talking to him and say, you got to hang on in there and come up with something. So he did. He hung in there and like he made up his mind that whenever they made love, it would be her that wanted it because he was not going to have her say, you only want me for the sex. Now mm-hmm. he could say, you only want me for the sex, but she would never say that to him. And that was important to him. And to I feel like this book life. is, this book is one big grovel. Like if anybody needs to know how to write a grovel, you just wrote a whole book of groveling. <laughs> and Jay, what I like, he knew what he had to do. He knew what his mistakes were. Mm-hmm. He never shared himself with her. And he never allowed her to share herself with him. So he took opportunities like jogging, invited her to jog, and they talked. Something they never did before. It was always, okay, what time is it? Time to go to bed. You know, so it wasn't that. So he wanted to change the tide on their relationship. It wasn't easy, but he was determined, you know. Yeah. My favorite scene, one of when I was writing it, was when she decided to change, turn it on him and came up with the idea of the lost earring. You know, I'm like, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, you lost your earring. And Jay, like, what is wrong with her? I know she knew it was me out here because she saw the car pull up. So <laughs> what's going on here? I'm like, slow, you're so slow, you know. <laughs> I just love when she like comes home from work and he's outside barbecuing because he knows that she loves his barbecue. And I'm like, here he goes. Yes, he knew. Uh, And she's hungry. So she's like, I'm not going to say no, it's free food. Right. And she knew what part of the meat. I mean, he just had her from the beginning. And then I wanted special moments like when he invited her to help him build the rocking chair. He had never invited, he always worked with his hands, but he never invited her to do anything. So he was slowly gnawing away at the guard that she had put up. So yeah, Jay was determined. He was determined. Yeah. And this is how you redeem a hero, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) He was redeemed. Yes. Jay was redeemed. Well, let's go back some. Tonight and Forever was your first Madeira's family novel with Arabesque. Tell us what the world of romance publishing looked like when you were entering into it. Whoa. It wasn't welcoming. I'll tell you that. Um, Because... Back in the 90s, and that book came out in 95, I began going to romance conferences um, in 90 or 89, 90. 
And it was like uh, the publisher, this is a book, good book. We like it. We can't publish it because we're not doing any black romances. I said, but you are doing romances, but you do understand that there's room for everybody. And their thing was, we got this thing that works. We got the Bible belt that's not going to be open to this. And our attitude is black women are buying our books. They're not complaining. So why should we, it's not broken. So why should we try to change it or fix it in any kind of way? And that was disheartening to me because, I mean, I came from a very loving family. My dad, my mom, my aunt, my uncles. And then I had a loving relationship with my husband. We started dating when I was 14. He gave me this promise ring at 15 that I still wear today. And, um, you know, I just could not believe that they could be, you know, close-minded like that. But one publisher gave us a chance, and that was Kensington, even though our contracts were not even equal to our counterparts' contract, the percentage of the book. But that was okay, because we knew we had to prove ourselves, and we did. Once they put those books out there on the shelves, Black women who were starving to seeing themselves on the cover, who just wanted to read about women that looked like them. They bought it. It didn't take away from the other books. To me, it enhanced just the line of romance. Mm -hmm. So uh, once Tonight and Forever finally got published, that opened up a whole new era for me. I was already working at State Farm um, and... I was juggling writing and it was fine because they only wanted a book once a year. That's all they would sign me up for. And then when the book starts selling, they say, uh, could we get a book from you every nine months? So it was like I was having a baby every nine months. I was producing a book. And then I'm still working full time, trying to make it into management. And then they say, well, can we get at least two a year from you now? Wow. And I'm like, you know, so, but I was producing. I still, somehow, because I was teaching time management at State Farm, I said, well, I teach time management. That was one of the things I taught to management people. So maybe now I need to put it in practice. And I would get up three o'clock every morning. I had to be to work at eight. I would get up at three and I would write. And then I would go to bed at night and get up at three the next morning and still write and edit and still do whatever. Because I got my first check, even though it wasn't a lot. It was more. <laughs> you know, it yeah. was additional. So my it was husband extra money, yeah. Down and we say, wow. He's saying, you could make this just for coming up with stories? I'm like, yeah. Can you believe that? He said, what can I do to help? You know? I said, well, baby, you're going to always be my research. So you good. You good. <laughs> I say, but you know what I need is just your support. And he gave it to me. And we used all my money, my early money, to build a college, a college fund for my sons because they had always told me we want to go to an Ivy League college. They were just fixated on going to an Ivy League college. They um, saw this program on television that talked about the great eight or nine Ivy Leagues. And they said, I want to go to that one. And the other one said, I want to go to that one. And so we said, that's where they want to go. That's where they're going. So my youngest son graduated from Cornell and my oldest son went to Columbia. So we had, because of books I had written, we had the funds to send them there. And I was wow. glad about that. That's incredible. That's incredible. Yeah. I feel like we still have this conversation of, you know, people don't want to read this, you know, and you can fill in the blank. But it's like, if you're not putting it out, we can't buy what's not being put out, you right. know? And like you said, mm -hmm. now we you have black romances on the shelf and women are buying them. Well, they weren't buying them before because you weren't putting them out. Out there before, I know. And that was, was so crazy. And I was glad that uh, Kensington Publishing took a chance and introduced yeah. Arabesque. And all the other publishers just sat back and waited to see what was going to happen, whether mm -hmm. it was going to 
you know, fail or whether it was going to make money. And it was all about money. Because once they saw that uh, it was going to succeed, then little by little, they started doing their own line of books. You know, um, Avon did their own line. Harlequin started doing their own line. Everybody started adding to it. But they, was, they, they were very cautious at mm-hmm. first because they didn't want to upset their typical readers, you know. And I'm sure there might have been readers that were upset, but... But far and large, women who read romance want to want a really good romance story. They don't care if the hero or heroine is a person of color. They just want a good romance story. And that's proven to me over the years. And I'll believe that because I have just as many people of non-people of color that's reading about my Westmorelands. Then just as many as I do of people of color. So um, give them a good romance book and they will read. And I tell my some authors this, um, African-American authors who um, say, well, we can't get white women to read our books. I'm like, are you reaching out to them? I mean, what kind of books, you know, are you writing? You know, they read mine and, you know, I just write a love story. I don't give them a history lesson. I write a love story. I put history in there when I want it to be in there. And then I put it in there so subtle, like you don't even know you're getting a history lesson when you read my book, you know? And so um, I'm proud of my fans, my readers from all over, across the pond, uh, you know, in all countries, because my books are in 36 different languages. And so I write um, a love story that features people of color, but it's a love story for anyone. Yeah. I forgot who said it. I, I, I feel like it may have been a Nora Roberts tweet a few years ago. She's like, if we can read about shifters, <laughs> you can read about anything. And I'm like, amen. <laughs> I know. I know. In fact, I had a, um, I went to a conference and this white woman got up. And she said, I'm going to share with y'all because none of y'all won't ever meet my husband. So y'all can't ever brag them about it. But I was reading one of your books, Brenda, and it had this black guy on the cover with no shirt on. And he asked, why are you reading that book? And he said, why can't I read that book? You didn't say anything when I had a guy half werewolf, half whatever on the cover. So what do you got? And that made him think. She said, he said, oh, you're right. You know, and sometimes you have to ask people problem. You know, what is the problem? So, yeah. And she got up and she said, now when I read it on the cover, he said, can I read it when you finish? And she said, sure. <laughs> so now he reads Brenda Jackson books. So I'm like, yeah. Well, taking it back again. Delaney's Desert Chic is book number Whoa. one in your prolific Westmoreland series yes. and was your first Harlequin Desire. Can you share with us how writing for Desire came to be? And and also, what was Desire like back then compared to what it is now? Yeah. Well, I know they did not have any African-American or Black authors because for years, that was my to-go-to book. I always had a desire book in my purse because it was could fit in your purse. You could pull it out. You could read it in one one day or two days. And, you know, it was just a cute, sexy story. And I always looked at the man of the month. I mean, you know, once in a while they had a man of the month. And I wrote Harlequin and I say, could I ask you why y'all don't ever have a black man of the month? And they told me because we don't have any black submission. So I started sending in my stories and for whatever reason, they turned it down. You know, we're not ready for this or whatever. So I said, okay. So when I heard that they had hired a black editor, I'm like, wow. And we read RWA. I'm like, wow, I want to see who this is and see her now they're open to black submissions. I was already writing for Arabesque. I had written a good, a good, I guess, eight books. And so when I introduced myself to Mavis Allen, who was their black uh, editor, she said, I know who you are. And I was going to try to meet up with you because I would love to talk to you about joining 
our desire line. And I'm like, really? <laughs> Honestly, you know. And at first, I'm like, oh, they had to wait until they heard of me before they invite me, you know. But then my agents say, no, you know, it's just the timing. So when I met with Mavis and I had uh, breakfast with her, I said, I would love to write for you guys. What sort of books are popular? And so she said, sheets. I'm like, what? A sheet book? A black woman writing a chic book. Okay. Um, I said, will my sheet be any different than the other sheet? She said, no, he won't be any different. So what I did, I did research on chic. She said that that was the most popular theme of books by desires, the sheet book. So I, when I got back home, I did my research and I said, okay, I can do this. And I called her. I say, but now just letting you know, you're putting a sheik from the Middle East against an American black woman. Okay. So, <laughs> right. going <laughs> to get hot up in here. The lady is going to shake this sheik up and she's going to throw all his customs out the door. Right. There's a little bit of our culture class. Yes. And maybe say, I love it. Do it. And that's what I did. And they did no changes to that book. I thought they was going to soften her attitude or whatever. Mm -mm. They let Delaney be Delaney and they let the sheep be the sheep. (laughs) And you're right. It was culture clash. And but in the end, they came together. Yeah. And that was, was important to show. And at first I thought it was not going to get published because when I, after I turned it in, then we had 9-11. Mm. So then they had to see whether this country would even want to read a Middle Eastern a book about a guy from the Middle East. So once they calmed everything down, they put it on the schedule and they didn't change anything. And I appreciated that because Delaney got written how Delaney should have gotten written. And it ended up being a success. You had some people that wrote in and said, what in the world? You know, but <laughs> other people just loved, loved it. it. And they loved it. And Delaney, even now, if you ask women what's their favorite Westmoreland book, is either Thorn because of the motorcycle or Delaney. And so I feel I'm proud of Delaney and her desert sheep. Yeah. And now I'm like, when's the last time I saw a sheik in Desire? Like that must yeah. have went out a long time ago. <laughs> I love a desert romance, but I'm I, sheik specifically. I'm like, I have not seen one of those in Desire in so yeah. long. <laughs> yeah. Well, we have to talk about the Kamani line. Okay. Solid Soul was book oh. one. Yeah. Tell us about you know, writing for the Kamani line. How did that happen? And and you were writing for both. So like creatively, what did you enjoy about writing for both of those lines at the same time? I had no intention of writing for Kamani because okay. I was already inside Harlequin. I was yeah. writing for Desire. I had a big name for Desire. And then when they bought um, BET, Arabesque, and they made, you know, joined with Kamani and they formed Kamani, um, other authors said, oh, well, now they got the black line, so they're going to take you out of Desire and put you in Kamani. I'm like, what? Where are you hearing that from? Well, it makes perfect sense. I said, no, it doesn't make perfect sense. I have a home in Desire. I got a good home in Desire. I enjoy writing Desire. Just because they have a black line that's, they're not going to take me out of desire and now put me there. And so when I got the call, you know, and say, we want you to write for Kamani, I had to make sure, okay, are you taking me from desire? Said, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> you are doing well in desire. We just want you to kick off Kamani. Okay, and that sounds was- like a lot of pressure, Miss Brenda. I'm just being honest. <laughs> But I was honored. You know, yeah. I'm like, wow. They say yes, because you have a name with us in Harlequin and already. And we think you would be the perfect person to do it. And then I felt honored. And so I said, well, what do I have to do? They say, just come up with another family. I'm another family. 
I got the Madeiruses. I got the Westmorelands. Okay, another family? So they say yes. So I came up with the Steels. And it was just going to be the Steels of North Carolina, Charlotte. The brothers and the cousins. And then when we got like almost two to the almost to the end, the books were doing so well. They said you gotta find some more cousins. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. And when you come from a big family, you know how to find cousins. So then I had the steals of Phoenix, Arizona, those bad news still. They were worse than the other. They were younger, they were worse. I mean, so I wrote about a different type of steel. And so the readers love it. And Solid Soul was my first one. One of my favorite movies that I used to watch with my kids was Parents Trap with Haley Mills. Mm-hmm. And I always wanted to write my own type of parent trap where the kids work their parents together. And that's what happened. You had a guy who thought his dad needed a life, a girl who thought her mom needed a life. They were talking over lunch. They were just friends. My mom needed a life. Your dad needed a life. Hmm. Let's put them together. I had so much fun with that book. I totally enjoyed writing that book. And I hope to see it in a movie one day because I would love to see. In fact, the young boy in that book, Marcus, I'll be writing his book soon because Marcus is now grown up and he's a attorney. He's an attorney. So I'm like, wow, it's, it's been a while. It's been years. So, but I love, I love that. Love it. Yeah. I, I, I love, love Solid that. Soul. Yes. And well, another thing about Solid Soul, the guy that was on the cover was Mr. Romance that year. Yes, Randy Richwood. Yeah, he was Mr. Romance. He was, um, it was a national search for Mr. Romance and he won. Just like, wow. you know, they have Dancing with the Stars where callers call in and he was a truck driver and Tom Joyner was saying, okay. We got to get a brother for Mr. Romance and women were calling in and I was lucky. And one of his prizes would be that he would be on the cover of a romance novel. And I got, uh, he got to be on the cover of my novel. Oh my God. (laughs) I was honored. Yeah. Well, knowing that you were writing for both, Uh when Kamani closed, did you have a feeling, did you have a hunch like this is coming to an end? really didn't because um, I knew a lot of readers that were reading Kamani, but I knew um, just from a sales point of view, because I was writing for both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and you, you know, you have a tendency to look at your sales statement, you know, when you get your check, I knew that they were not publishing as many Kamani as they, because Desires was in the book club and you know, it was a lot going on with desire. And um, again, and I tell people because I worked in corporate America, I understood supply and demand. A publisher yeah. is in the business to make money. They have to look at their sales sheets to see what's making, what's selling, what's not selling. But I felt that if they were going to get rid of Kamani, which they eventually did, that I was hoping they gave everyone an opportunity to write within Harlequin and other lines. And I believe they did do that. So I was happy over that. And again, I tell people, if your sales like anything else, because I've had to have those conversations with, um, you know, people that I work with, because I was in management, that you need to, you know, kind of do better. You have to have those conversations and, um, people knew what their sales were. If they, if you were not selling in Kamani, then yeah, they were going to be hesitant to move you over to another line. Now, there are some felt like they could have done more uh, to, you know, push Kamani, but you can only do so much, you know. So that's my take on it. I was just glad that I was had a chance to write for Kamani. I think what um. The part that bothered me or hurt me more so was the demise of Arabesque. Because okay. Arabesque was the first 
line that offered that and went arabesque when Kamani folded, so did arabesque. And arabesque was near and dear to my heart because arabesque gave me my start. So, yeah, that's the only thing. It was sad. I was sad to, you know, buy arabesque. Yeah. Kensington, like, I I knew that they they had the black line. I heard there was like a Latina line where like one page would be in English and the other page would be in Spanish. And I'm like, they were really given some chances back then that I don't necessarily think we would see these days. No, and I have to take my head off to Walter Zacharias. He's the founder of Kensington. And it was only through Catherine Falk because we would go to all of Romantic Times conferences and we built a rapport with her. And she knew that we were out there struggling, trying to get someone to take us, to notice us and to give us a chance, the Black office a chance. And she basically um, helped do that by putting a, a bug in his ear that, you know, these women, they write wonderful stories. All they need is a chance. And he gave us the chance. And then within five years, of course, BET came and they bought the line. Um, and so that what happened to that. And then Harlequin, when BET decided we're going to get out of the publishing business and just center on entertainment, I'm glad Harlequin came and, you know, bought the Arabesque line. And they expanded it to include Kamani. And then they had Arabesque. The longer books were Arabesque books. But um, I just hate that the Arabesque line folded with Kamani because, again, I'm, you know, I was attached to it because it was my first book was an Arabesque book. So. Yeah. yeah. Oh, talk about a collector's item. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Well, getting into some roundouts, what is one book you wish you could experience reading again for the first time? Um, I think no matter how often I read Shanna by Kathleen oh. Widowis, you know, and my boys, they just, that was their tail on mommy book, okay? Because <laughs> they said, mommy, when are we going to eat? Just one more page, one page, one more page. And then when their dad came home, mommy didn't feed us. She's reading Shanna again. <laughs> So that was the book. I guess they thought their dad was going to spank me or something. I don't know. <laughs> and so he said, okay, let's get in the car and go to Burger King, whatever. Mom is in her read a book moment. But um, I don't think I don't think I could ever read Shanna too much. Because to me, it was the ultimate love story about a man who put up with a lot of spoiled, bratty girl you know it's a historical but I don't know what Catherine uh Widowers was thinking when she wrote that story but to me she wrote a masterpiece wow. even uh Flame and the Flower you know I was just and that was back in the day I was hooked on all historicals all Catherine Widowers my second son was named Brandon if I would have gotten away with it I would have named him Brandon Birmingham Jackson my <laughs> husband say Hell no. <laughs> okay, but you're not naming my kid Birmingham for his last, his middle name. Okay, and so his name, and he knows where he got the name, I got his name from, from the flame and the flower. So um, I just love reading those books. You know, they were just the highlight after working hard all day. And that was before I was writing. I would just come home and curl in a good book. And I don't care how many times I read that book, that book and Night Song by Beverly Jenkins. Those are my two go-to stories. I love those two books. Yeah. Oh gosh. Now I feel like I need to read this Shanna because <laughs> no, in January is coming to Audible. Can oh, you? That's when I'll read it. Okay. Oh God. It's like, and my son now he's 45. He said, oh, my God, now I'm never going to because you're going to be listening to it all the time. I'm like, you need to get married anyway, okay? Yeah. Why are you still here? You know? <laughs> well, tell us one of your most recent 
unputdownable reads? Like what's something you've read recently that you loved? Oh gosh, what have I read? Hmm, I read some of everything. Oh, what I love reading is Iris Bowling. Iris Bowling is an independent author and she write about some kick ASS women and men. I mean, they are a fantastic family. I write about family. Well, her family, I mean, the girls carry guns in the purses. And, you know, they are just that type of family that just, what up, the Lassiters. And I love that family. I just love that family. So whenever I can, I read one of her stories. Because, you know, I'm always writing, so I don't get a chance to read a lot. And then I like listening to books on audio. So I listen to books on audio. I listen to Beverly Jenkins' book. She had a good one that came out just last month or this this month. Yeah, so I'm listening to that. So, you know, I'm just listening to books on tape. It was hard, you know, to listen to books. I like the feel of a book in my hand. It was hard for me to go from book to Kindle. Then when I got Kindle, that was like, I'm going to bed with Kendall now. Husband, don't you get jealous, you know. <laughs> and now, um, Audible. I love listening to these guys that just narrates with their little sexy voice. And oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. And I'm just proud of the men that narrate my story. And, you know, mm-hmm. so I'm good. I'm good. I go to bed every night. Kalina Cole, the one Blueberry Lane. I go back. I don't know whether both of you read the whole book yet, but I love that scene before the school board. I know exactly where that scene starts. Chapter 30. And I'm gone. (laughs) I may fall asleep. And if I go to the bathroom in the middle of the night and it's still going, I put it back. Chapter 30. (laughs) The audio narration for the book is fantastic. Yes. Ron (laughs) Butler really does a wonderful job. Yeah. 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 It's good. Yeah. Well, what is one of your favorite tropes to read? Oh, God. I would think because of the way my love story with my husband starts, I love stories where even if they come back together in a second chance where they met in high school or college, because I love those stories. I love where they were first love at some point and they come back, you know, whether they come back after they married somebody else or meeting again at their class reunion, whatever. I love the childhood sweetheart romances. Mm What is one of the toughest pieces of advice that you've ever received? Oh, gosh. I think the toughest advice was when I was starting out um, where this editor, and she's still in um, the publishing industry, she told a group of us before any of us got published, um, basically, give it up. Um, that we would never be published, that um, our books would never add up to our counterpart. And we asked her, have you ever read any of our books? She said, no, but I know it won't. And it's just like, I guess, the guy that told Michael Jordan he would never play basketball. You tell me I can't do anything, that I would not be good enough. I'm going to prove you wrong. So that made me go to even more writers' conferences, sit in on workshops given by the best. When I say the best, Noah Roberts, uh, Julie Garwood, and just listening to them tell you how to do it. And I did it. And of course, the struggle was real. But to say that you will never amount to anything. And so my husband, before he died, and he'd been gone almost nine years, he said, It still bothers you. One day you need to just take that lady aside and say, look at me. You were wrong. And until you do that, you're not going to ever get over it. And so one day I will. Whenever I see her, I smile. And I'm wondering, does she remember telling me that all those years ago? Because now I'm a New York Times, USA Today, Publisher Weekly, Amazon bestseller, over 140 novels. But yet still, she stood before us and said, 
I don't know why y'all even come to this conference all every year because y'all will never make it. And she was, and she really believed that when she said it. So I'm glad I got to prove her wrong. That was the tough advice that I was given that I didn't take. I yeah. refused to accept yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. And she somewhere has to live with that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like oh, yeah. I, I said some foul stuff in my day, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, knowing what you know now, what is one piece of advice that you'd go back and tell yourself at the beginning of your writing career? Um, I would tell myself when the going get tough, still get going, that don't ever give up. Even though I used to say I could plaster the walls with all the rejection letters I got. And my husband was my biggest cheerleader. He said, well, baby, you write good stories. I'm like, oh, do you know you don't even read them, you know? And he said, but you got to put action in it, blood, guts. I'm like, but then it won't be a romance story, you know? So I think for me, it's patience. Because for a while there, I was running, I felt like I was running out of patience. Because I thought. You know, I would go and listen to my cousins and them saying, we want to read romance books. We want to go to a bookstore and see a woman on the cover look like like us. And to get that message across was hard, but I'm glad that I didn't give up and that I would tell myself, continue to be patient, get more patient and spread the word to bring others on board, not just to let them say, well, I'm not going to do it. Because a lot of good authors are not out there because they gave up. They gave up the fight. They said, I'm not, you know, I ain't fixing to do all this. You know, why should I get paid less than my counterparts just because? But sometimes you have to do what you have to do to get out. there. And so that's what I would tell myself uh, is continue to be patient, to be more patient. To um, be my, you know, my husband was my biggest cheerleader to be my own cheerleader. You know, he was my cheerleader. And so I had to learn how to be my own cheerleader, too. So that's what I would tell myself. Well, is there anything that you are working on that you can tell us about? Oh, yes. I'm working on a new um, outlaw book. In fact, it's now the outlaw girl, Charm Outlaw. Bart's youngest daughter, I mean, only daughter, the pride of his life. And I'm loving it. I'm loving Charm's book because I talked all about her brothers. And all you kind of figure out about Charm, she the apple of her dad's eye. And now, you know, what's going on with him. And when you find out that he sabotaged her love affair, which was a childhood at 16, she fell in love. And so I'm bringing in my favorite trope. And so, you know, I'm just love love writing this story. Oh, gosh, it's always oh, so good so. and juicy when the parent gets involved and you didn't know oh. about it. Oh, yes. <laughs> you know, parents think they know what's best for, the, you know, because I know um, I got my ring at 15 and I was not even supposed to be talking to boys until I was 15, <laughs> 16. And I don't know what was so magical about the age of 16. My mom said, you can't talk to boys until you're 16. I'm like, so one night I go to bed at 15. The next day I wake up at 16 and I can talk to boys. I don't understand that. (laughs) I got the ring at 15 and I had to pay my brother hush money. So he would tell my parents. I mean, he took me to the cleaners. I would sit in my cafeteria and not have lunch money because my brother took my lunch money to keep his mouth shut that I was wearing a ring. And then I had to remember to take it off before I got in the house. And it was, oh, it was so much drama going on. (laughs) But, you know, it was fun. And... So that's really what I love about romance is just knowing all of that and knowing what people will go through for love. And so I'm good. I'm good. And I appreciate, you know, paying him hush money, I guess, you know, but it was worth it. It was worth it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, lastly, where can everyone follow you online? Wow. Everyone can follow me online at www.brendajackson.net. I'm also on Facebook, Brenda Jackson fan page. I'm on Twitter. 
I'm also on Instagram. And pretty soon I hear from my son who handles a lot of my stuff, I'll be on TikTok. So I, I knew it. I can't wait. <laughs> we can't you know, wait. I can't wait, you know, TikTok. So first of the year, Brenda Jackson will be introduced to TikTok. So, and, you know, that's where you can find me. And some of my books now are being optioned for movies. So I'm glad of that. Can't wait. I know. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. This is just truly been an honor and we've been so excited to chat with you you'll have to come back please oh (laughs) please please invite me back i'm i mean i would love to come back thank you so much i mean i'm five books away from my 150th novel well you have to celebrate with us yes definitely (laughs) and so i've already it's going to be a madaris book I mean, my first book was a Madeiras. My 100th book was a Madeiras. My 75th book was a Madeiras. So I've always already said my 150th book will be a Madeiras. Any milestone book will be a Madeiras book. So I'm ready. I'm ready to write my Madeiras, my 150th (laughs) book. I'm at 145 (laughs) next month. So I only have five more books to go. That's incredible. incredible, Congratulations and thank thank you you for your love of romance and all of your hard work. And yes, you'll have to come celebrate with us. We will celebrate. We will celebrate. (laughs) celebrate.